Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Job, chapter 19, verses 14 through 27. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? All that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the end he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of the word. We praise you for revealing Christ to us in type and shadow. Help us to understand these words for the name's sake. Amen. Today's New Testament lesson is taken from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. But it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that's come from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to forgive and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. From the perspective of Job's friends, the reason why Job has lost all his possessions, all his children, and his health is very simple. God is holy, and therefore God must punish all sin. And 
since it's obvious that Job is being punished by God, there can only be one explanation. Either Job or his children have committed some horrible sin that has kindled the wrath of God. But Job knows that he's innocent of any such sin. And his heart is broken because he has no idea why God is subjecting him to such, as an, to such an ordeal. And even as he cries out to God, lamenting his sad state and asking why, Job knows that his friends have no clue as to why he is suffering. He knows their attempts to comfort him are nothing but cruel and self-righteous diatribes which have no basis in fact. And as Job, Job becomes increasingly defiant with his friends, they become increasingly angry and frustrated with Job, who in their estimation could easily remedy his situation if only he'd see the light and repent of his sins. But the dialogue of friends in Job 4 through 14 now becomes a full-blown argument in Job 15 to 21. Now we return to our series on Job this morning and we pick up where we left off as we proceed to that second cycle of speeches between Job and his three friends. That second cycle covers chapters 15 to 21. You may want to turn your Bibles to Job chapter 15. And it includes speeches or what we can call diatribes from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar followed each time by responses from Job. And as we saw when we covered the first cycle of speeches, these speeches began when Job's friends responded to that heartbreaking lament of Job chapter 3. And what began as an effort to comfort Job quickly takes up the air of a council of tribal elders who instead of comforting their friend are now trying to correct him. And as this second cycle of speeches unfolds, as we will see this morning, the discussion becomes more and more confrontational as Job's friends become angry with him because Job not only refuses to take their advice, but Job even has the nerve to defend himself against the accusation that the root cause of his problem is the retributive justice of God. God is holy. God must punish all sin. Now, before we work our way through this second cycle of speeches, we need to keep in mind several very key facts. Remember that the reader knows what Job, what neither Job nor his friends know. Very important information. That Job's trial by ordeal does not stem from some secret sin in Job's life, but comes about because it's God who's called Satan's attention to Job, who is the apple of God's eye. Ever scheming, Satan sees a chance to undercut the foundation of the gospel when he challenges God to remove Job's prosperity and to destroy his family. Satan is convinced that Job is not a righteous man, but he's a self-centered opportunist who fears God and shuns evil only because God gives him all kinds of material blessings. Take them away, Satan contends, and Job will curse God to his face. And yet, when Job's possessions are taken away and his children are tragically killed, instead Job praises God. And so Satan tries yet again. Only this time, Satan dares God to take away Job's health and predicts that again Job will curse God to his face. And so once afflicted with this horrible skin disease, 
Job doesn't curse God. Again, Job praises God. And Satan's scheme now comes to naught. But as time goes on, Job not only becomes more and more of a physical wreck, miserable, suffering. He's deprived of sleep and rest. He's an outcast forced to live on the town dunghill. But Job's emotional state now deteriorates to the point that one had what had been unrestrained praise for God now becomes this plaintive cry, why? And an angry demand that he be vindicated. Job is heartbroken at the loss of his children. He's sick. He's an outcast. And it's Job who ends the silence of mourning by pouring out his heart, speaking at times either directly to his friends or directly to God. Now, a second thing we need to keep in mind as we go through this is that Job repeatedly acknowledges that he's a sinner. But Job also believes God's promise to provide a Redeemer who will save him from his sins, which is why Job made burnt offerings on behalf of himself and his children. Job knows that his sins are covered. He's blameless and upright before God, a fruit of that faith that he has in God's promise to deliver him. And that's why Job is so perplexed when these horrible things come to pass. And while Job really doesn't disagree with the substance of his friend's arguments to the effect that God is holy and that he must punish all sin, Job knows that that's not the situation regarding him. Job knows that he's done nothing wrong to provoke that kind of divine wrath that has brought about the loss of all of his possessions, his children, and his health. And so as his angst increases, Job senses that what is needed is a mediator between the holy God and sinful men and women. And so as Job now starts wrestling with these questions associated with the suffering of the righteous, ever so slowly, he begins to realize that he must look to a Redeemer. And it's Job who starts to point us to the coming mediator, Jesus Christ, who one day Job believes will stand on the earth. Now third, what probably hurts Job the most is the loss of his good name and his reputation. Job knows that everyone from his wife to his three friends to the citizens of Uz were all thinking the same thing. What sin did Job commit that brought all this to pass? What did Job do to bring about such punishment from God? But Job knows there is no such sin. And he cries out for a trial before God, even though he knows that God's greatness is far too much for him. That's why Job demands that God vindicate his good name. Because apart from such vindication, it only seems to Job that God is his enemy and that the armies of heaven are somehow arrayed against him. And Job would rather die, he says, than go on feeling like God has turned against him and is punishing him when he's confessed his sins and done nothing wrong. And yet throughout this entire ordeal, Job refuses to curse God as Satan predicted that he would. And therefore, Job successfully passes this ordeal, frustrating the schemes of Satan and introducing the principle into redemptive history that a greater Job, Jesus Christ, will one day triumph over Satan through his own perfect and faultless obedience. And so all of that then brings us to cycle two, round one, as Eliphaz now makes his second speech in Job chapter 15. So turn your Bibles, if you would, to Job 15. 
Now, given the fact that Job's friends are orthodox in their theology, that God is holy and must punish sin, and given the fact that Job will not admit the obvious, that he's being punished because he sinned, coupled with the fact that Job is increasingly defiant toward his friends, Eliphaz now gives up all pretense of his genteel manner we saw in the earlier speech. And so throughout this second speech, Eliphaz boldly sets his own wisdom as superior to Job's. Eliphaz accuses Job of folly, stupidity, and impiety, ungodlessness. His frustration with Job is now becoming very, very obvious. Now, smarting personally because of Job's complete dismissal of his prior words of wisdom from the first speech, in Job 15, verses 2 through 3, we see how personal this is getting. As Eliphaz gets very personal with Job, the gloves are now off. And Eliphaz asked Job, Would a wise man answer with empty notions or fill his belly with a hot east wind? Would he argue with useless words with speeches that have no value? And so here Eliphaz casts himself as the wise man, referring to Job as a hot wind, Literally a belly wind. You can figure that out if you think about it. And as Eliphaz sees it, Job has shown himself not only to be foolish, but according to verse 4, Job's words are downright dangerous. But you, Job, even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Now, if people get wind of what Job is saying and act in the same way in which Job is acting, that will lead them to question God's will and to question God's wisdom. Not a good thing coming from a man like Job who had been such an example to so many. Now, up to this point, Job's friends could only make vague accusations that Job had committed some secret sin. But as we read in verses 5 to 6, Eliphaz now thinks he's got something more specific to pin on Job. His defiant speech, which in Eliphaz's mind only proves the point that Job is not the righteous man that everyone assumes him to be says Eliphaz, your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your lips testify against you. And yet Eliphaz's assessment of Job's sin really doesn't matter since God has already declared of Job in Job 1.22, in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. For Eliphaz, the only possible explanation is the retributive justice of God. God is punishing Job because Job sinned. But Eliphaz has never once even entertained the possibility that Job's ordeal might stem from some other reason and that God may have a purpose in all of this which is not based on retributive justice. Ironically, it's Eliphaz, seeing himself to be wise, who limits God. Job has not brought this to pass through some personal sin, but Eliphaz just simply is not going to consider any other option. On verses 7 to 10, Eliphaz belittles Job. Now mind you, look, consider Job's condition. He belittles Job by asking him humiliating questions that stem from his assumption that he has superior knowledge. And so Eliphaz says to this poor suffering Job, Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth from the hills? In other words, were you eternal? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? The gray-haired and the aged are on our side, men older even than your father. 
Now this gray-haired and aged man is probably a description of Eliphaz, who goes on in verses 11 to 17 to speak of himself as the one offering Job God's consolation. He asked Job, are God's consolations not enough for you? In other words, are my words not enough for you? Words spoken gently to you? Why has your heart carried you away, and why do your eyes flash so that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth? What is man that he could be pure, or one born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is vile and corrupt, who drinks up evil like water? Now, you have to do a little bit of going back to the first speech here to understand this. In Job 5.26, Eliphaz described a good man's death as follows. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like she's gathered in the season. In other words, prosperous. And Job, if you recall, took issue with him then. Uh, in Job 7, 9 to 11, listen how Job expects a man to die. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. Now, overhearing Job's response to Eliphaz, Bildad gets in his two bits in Job 8, 22. Your enemies will be clothed in shame, and the tents of the wicked will be no more. And Job responded to him in Job 12.6. The tents of the marauders are undisturbed, and those who provoke God are secure, those who carry their God in their hands. In other words, we can tell the righteous because God blesses them. We can tell the evil because God curses them. And Eliphaz now cannot stand Job's answer, and he's not going to let it go. The issue for him is the fate of the wicked, and Job can't see it. And so in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, Eliphaz speaks in direct rebuttal of Job and those earlier speeches, doing his best to make the case that not only do the wicked have a miserable death, but that they die before their time. And that's the practical outworking of Eliphaz's understanding of this principle of retributive justice. If God must punish all sin, not only are sinners going to have a miserable life, but they'll die prematurely. Now, according to Eliphaz, listen to me and I will explain to you. Let me tell you what I have seen, what wise men have declared. Hiding nothing received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given when no alien passed among them. Now notice that Eliphaz here is limited to his own observation, to his own wisdom, all of which he's just told Job were confirmed to him in a vision, remember? All his days the wicked man suffers torment, the ruthless through all the years stored up for him. Terrifying sounds fill his ears when all seems well marauders attack him. Does that sound like anybody we know? He despairs of encamp escaping the darkness. He's marked for the sword. He wanders about food for vultures. He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish fill him with terror. They overwhelm him like a king poised to attack because he shakes his fist at God and vaunts himself against the Almighty, defiantly charging against him with a thick, strong shield. Let him not deceive himself by trusting what is worthless, for he will get nothing in return. Before his time, he will be paid in full, and his branches will not flourish." Now, as one commentator points out, how ironic it is that Eliphaz calls Job a belly wind and yet ends his speech with just restating over and over and over again the same old tired argument, Job, you reap what you sow. And that sets the tone then for this entire second cycle of speeches. 
And what Eliphaz simply cannot handle is the self-evident fact that there are wicked people who prosper and there are righteous people who suffer. And Eliphaz does not appreciate and cannot appreciate the finer points of eschatology. That is, the reaping part might not come until the next age. It might not come until the day of judgment. The reaping part might not be realized in this life at all. Now, the implication that Eliphaz's speech has isn't lost on Job. If Job is really the righteous man, an upright man he claims to be, then he wouldn't be suffering, would he? Furthermore, if Job has the nerve not to admit that Eliphaz is right, then Job is a hypocrite as well. And so Job stands his ground, he's indignant, and he makes two very important points by way of rebuttal. Job is not guilty of some horrible sin, and God can do as he pleases, even if that doesn't jive with Eliphaz's understanding of this retributive principle of divine justice. As Job sees it, Eliphaz is speaking for all of his friends. And so in Job 16, the first five verses, he dismisses their comments with a fair bit of contempt. Then Job replied, I've heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you. If you were in my place, I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. And thus in verse 6, Job makes clear that there are many words or his own silence bring him no relief. Yet if I speak, my pain is not relieved, and if I refrain, it does not go away. Job feels like he's being assailed by his friends and by God. Surely, O God, you've worn me out. You've devastated my entire household. You've bound me, and it's become a witness. My gauntlessness rises up and testifies against me. As we see in verses 9 through 14, Job feels like God has turned against him. God assaults me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me with his piercing eyes. Men open their mouths and jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to evil men and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. And while that's not the case, we know this to be true from the, heaven, from the prologue in Job 1 and 2. We can certainly understand why Job feels like he does. He's lost everything. He is sick. He's miserable. He's an outcast. And even his friends are accusing him of something that he didn't do. And yet, despite all appearances to the contrary, God is for Job. And Job still hopes for vindication. And so in Job 16, 18 through 17, verse 3, we see not only the glowing embers of faith, but also the beginning of hope. And so Job cries out, O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. 
Only a few years will pass before I go on the journey of no return. My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. Give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? And so Job now starts to realize that the answer to his question, why, and his ultimate vindication might not come until his own death. But Job will get an answer, and he will be vindicated, if not in this life, certainly in the next. Job's eschatology is a fair bit better than Eliphaz's. Now because of this glimmer of hope, and because he has faith in the God of the promise, however weak that faith may be, Job knows that his friends can't help him. That's why his hope is in God. And even as Job's mood swings wildly to the point of despair in Job 17, verses 16 and 17, nevertheless, Job's angry and he mocks his friends in the balance of Job 17. You have closed their minds to understanding. Therefore, you will not let them triumph. God has made me a byword to everyone, a man who's in, in, in whose face people spit. My eyes have grown dim with grief. My whole frame is but a shadow. Upright men are appalled at this. The innocent are aroused against the ungodly. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to their ways, and those with clean hands will grow stronger. He's starting to get it. He's starting to see. But come on, all of you, try again. I will not find a wise man among you. My days have passed, my plans are shattered, and so are the desires of my heart. If the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? Not only is Job now giving as good as he's been getting, only a man with a glimmer of faith and with the beginnings of hope will now fight back as Job is doing. And so in cycle two, round two, it's now Bildad's turn to make his second speech. Now one thing is becoming very clear from this dialogue. Job the sufferer is now longing to probe the depths of the mysteries of God's providence while Job's friends are focusing more and more on their own distorted view of the suffering of the wicked. And Bildad is clearly resentful of Job's low estimate of his friend's theological abilities. And so in verses 1 through 4 of Job 18, Bildad responds to Job with words which reflect his increasing frustration and anger. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, When will you end these speeches? Be sensible and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? You tear yourself to pieces in your anger. Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? Or must rocks be removed from their place? Look, Job, if the law of divine retribution is immutable and if you refuse to repent, your life's going to be miserable. You're throwing yourself against the rocks of this fixed law that God must punish all sin. And how dare you think you're above these fixed laws? As Bildad sees it, the moral order of the universe is in fact set in stone. 
And since God will punish the wicked for their sins, in the balance of this chapter, Bildad just goes on ad nauseum and recites a whole catalog of the troubles of the wicked, all designed to appeal to Job's conscience, to get him to feel guilty for his sins. The problem with Bildad's speech is that Job isn't guilty. His conscience is clean. Says Bildad, and I'll just abbreviate this, the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, a trap lies in his path. Terrors startle him on every side, and dog his every step. Calamity is hungry for him, disease is ready for him when he falls, it eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. He's torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Fire resides in his tent, burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. He has no offspring or descendants among his people. No survivor where he once lived. Men of the West are appalled at his fate. Men of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who knows not God. Job, are you listening? And with that, we come to one of the most remarkable speeches in all the Bible, Job chapter 19. Not only do these wonderful words inspire Handel, they continue to inspire all who read them even to this day. It's not as though Bildad's words contain no truth. Yes, God's going to punish the wicked. That's not the issue. But it's Bildad's very cold and formulaic canned answer that doesn't fit the facts at hand. This may be true of the wicked when they suffer, but what about the righteous? They suffer too. And thus the issue is not what fixed law Job has broken. For Job, the issue is, why has God turned his back on me? And so Job presses ahead, seeking understanding of this great mystery that now stares him in the face. Why do the wicked prosper? And why do the righteous suffer? And so in verses 1 through 12 of Job 19, Job describes his frightful sense of isolation, even though his friends have come to comfort him. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you've reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it's true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor, removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I'm gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tents. Job longs for that day when God will finally respond to him. The suffering's bad enough, but waiting for an answer from God is even worse. In the meantime, Job is all alone. He cries out in verses 13 to 19. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look on me as an alien. 
My breath is offensive to my wife. Hmm. We'll let that go. I am loathsome to my own brothers. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. What Job wants is pity. He doesn't need a lecture from these guys. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Suddenly, Job has had enough. He's tired of the accusations. He's tired of the false charges. We are about to witness one of the most remarkable confessions of faith in all Scripture. And since even his closest friends don't believe him, in verses 23 through 24, Job now demands that a record of his integrity be written down for everybody to see. Declares Job in defiance, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Job wants an indelible record so that all who come after him will know that he is innocent and that long after he's dead and gone, he will be vindicated. Now, given the very early stage in redemptive history in which Job writes, Job is looking ahead to a time when he will finally be declared not guilty. That an ever-increasing hope of a Redeemer will come has already been hinted at back in Job 9 and in Job 16, and that hope now comes to full flower. Despite all that he has endured, in verse 25, Job declares, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Although everyone else doubts him, everyone else has deserted him, Job knows that a heavenly goel, a redeemer, the next of kin, that person who rights all wrongs, who settles estates, that person will do what his friends, his wife, and his contemporaries will not. They will believe his testimony. And they will vindicate his good name. The redeemer will make it certain. But Job doesn't stop. In verses 26 to 27, he declares in amazing words, and after my skin has been destroyed, here's a guy being eaten alive with some bizarre skin disease. After my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job longs. For the day of resurrection. He longs for resurrection from the dead, that time when his current suffering is but a dim memory, when his sick and afflicted body will be renewed. Well, as one writer so aptly puts it, here are the beginnings of what progressive revelation would ultimately enunciate in the doctrines of the coming of Christ at the end and the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. Remarkably, Job desires. The exact same thing the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Compare the words of Job to the words of Paul. Paul writes, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. A very tame English word, the Greek word is skabalo. I consider them rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, that righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, that same righteousness Job knows. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. With his eyes now set on the future, Job longs for the same thing the Apostle Paul longs for, and he now warns his friends that the coming resurrection is going to impact them every bit as much as it will impact him. And so we read in verses 27 to 28, you can see how feisty Job's getting now. If you say, how will, how will we hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him? You should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is a judgment. This is complicated theological language for saying, back off. Now in cycle two, round three, Zophar has been listening, and he regards these words from Job as a total insult. Now Job's three friends, as we've seen, are using the same tired script over and over and over, focusing exclusively upon the fate of the wicked. As Meredith Klein points out, you know, Job has just struck chords of redemptive truth so as to thrill angels. But Zophar, having ears, hears not. Zophar is content to draw in the inspiration for his lyrics from the dunghill where the friends found Job. And that is so true. And listen to what Zophar lets go in verses 2 through 14. Mind you what Job's been through. My troubled thoughts prompt me to answer because I'm greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke that dishonors me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. Surely you know how it has been from of old, ever since man was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief, and the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Though his pride reaches to the heavens, and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him say, where is he? The youthful vigor that fills his bones will lie with him in the dust. And though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he cannot bear to let it go and keeps it in his mouth, yet his food will turn sour in his stomach. It will become the venom of serpents with him. And after much more of the same, Zophar concludes in verses 27 to 29, the heavens will expose his guilt, the earth will rise up against him, a flood will carry off his house, rushing waters on the day of God's wrath. Such is the fate God allots the wicked, the heritage appointed for them by God. Now as Job sees it, his friends have offered no explanations for anything at all. Rather, they've denied the mystery of suffering simply because their view of retributive justice just doesn't fit with reality. There are wicked people who flourish. There are righteous people who suffer. Yes, in one sense, Job's friends are right. God will punish all sin and he will reward good. But what Job is starting to see is that this punishment and this reward will come on the day of judgment, the last day, and perhaps not beforehand. And so with faith and hope now stirring in his heart, Job rises above all these disappointments and he answers Zophar not with words of anger, but with words of hope. In Job 21, verses 2 through 3, Job challenges his friends. Listen carefully to my words. Let this be the consolation you give me. Bear with me while I speak, 
and after I have spoken, mock on. In verses 4 to 9, we see that Job now is looking for an answer from God. Is my complaint directed to man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Clap your hand over your mouth. When I think about this, I'm terrified. Trembling seizes my body. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. The fact of the matter is, the wicked do live on. The ground doesn't open up and swallow them. The faith that has befallen Job sometimes doesn't fall on them. Oh yes, they will be judged on the last day, but not necessarily tomorrow. Beloved, the answer is slowly but surely beginning to come to Job, as we see in verses 14 to 20 of Job 21. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? But their prosperity is not in their own hands. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them, the fate God allots in his anger? How often are they like straw before the wind, like chaff swept before a gale? It is said, God stores up a man's punishment for his sons. Let him repay the man himself so that he will know it. Let his own eyes see the destruction. Let him drink the wrath of the Almighty. Though his friends have not convinced him that they are right, Job is now fully convinced that they are not. In fact, as he ends his reply to Zophar, he tells all of his friends through Zophar in verse 34, So, how can you console me with your nonsense? Nothing is left of your answers but falsehoods. Not only, beloved, are the smoldering embers of faith even now burning in Job's heart, but he is sure that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have no answers whatsoever, only falsehoods. Job knows that he is a justified sinner. He is a righteous man because of what that goel will do for him. And yet, he still suffers. The words of his friends don't comfort him. They hurt him deeply. They don't heal. They inflict injury. They cannot explain the obvious. Wicked people do prosper and the righteous do suffer. And as Job is beginning to see God may indeed have a purpose in suffering which doesn't fit with what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar think that God's purpose for suffering actually is. But Job's heart stirred He's moved now to confess his faith with amazing strength, even through tears of pain and fear and doubt. Job knows that his Redeemer lives. He knows that his Redeemer will one day stand upon the earth. Job knows that he will see his Redeemer with the eyes of a resurrected body. Only one more cycle of discussion remains in Job 22 through 26. The argument, as we'll see, becomes more heated before it abruptly comes to a halt. Eliphaz and Bildad are going to give it one more try. And still, Job will have his say as well before God answers the lot of them from out of the whirlwind. So Lord willing, we'll turn next time to the final words of the debate. In the meantime, Job reminds us, we know our Redeemer lives. Amen.